I'm Andy Crouch, and thanks for listening to the Beer Edge podcast. Before we get to this week's great conversation with beer writer and author Tara Nuren, here's where I ask you to give us a hand here at the Beer Edge. Famous beer writer John Hall and I work hard to produce interesting podcasts and other content for you. And this is where you can give us a little hand. We've got some cool merch for sale at BeerEdge.com. Buy a Defend Pilsner shirt or a Camp Rauch beer mug and help support independent journalism. And if you're itching for more beer content, check out John's podcast, Drink Beer, Think Beer, with new episodes every Wednesday. It's a good listen, you know, if you have an hour or so to kill. And we're on the socials at The Beer Edge. If you want to be on the show, if you want to be a sponsor and help support The Beer Edge, or if you know the perfect guest, please drop me a line. Email is andy at beeredge.com, and my DMs are open everywhere at Beerscribe. My guest today is Tara Nuren, a longtime beer writer and the author of the upcoming book, A Woman's Place is in the Brew House, a forgotten history of alewives, brewsters, witches, and CEOs. A former television writer and reporter, Tara transitioned to writing about beer and travel when she saw both on the rise. She now works as a freelance writer who covers lifestyle trends with a focus on craft beer, alcohol, and culinary tourism. She is perhaps best known as this beer and spirits contributor to Forbes. I've always been curious about how Forbes.com works, and Tara goes into substantial detail about the inner workings of that relationship. As a writer, and hopefully for those in the audience, it's a fascinating listen and gives insight into what the Forbes name really means. A self-described lifelong feminist, Tara's work is often focused on women in the craft beer industry. She candidly acknowledges having fallen to many of the traps that befall writers covering women in brewing, like asking them what it was like to be a female brewer in a male-dominated space. After getting pushback from female brewers, Tara soon realized the subject was far deeper and more nuanced. In addition to her writing, Tara also does marketing for several beverage-related companies, and we talk about the tricky ethics of balancing both sides. And for those who think this episode is only about wonky journalism talk, think again. Tara's soon-to-be-released book is an enjoyable read that uncovers the stories and the forgotten history of some of the most important women founders in the early days of craft beer. Here's my candid and often opinionated discussion with beer writer and author Tara Nuren. So you mentioned that you were in television previously. How did you transition into writing? How did I transition into writing? I had done some freelance writing a few years prior. And so um, it wasn't completely unfamiliar. As I said, I was lucky enough to get um, a regular gig with a tourism bureau. So I was writing a lot of press releases at that point. And because I was already covering, you know, food and beverage in the area, it didn't turn out to be all that difficult to transition into pitching ideas to say the local alt weeklies, the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, and then some of the beer magazines and, and other mainstream lifestyle magazines that were, were out at that time. Um, I guess I asked a lot of veteran reporters a lot of questions on how to pitch mm-hmm. and uh, how to develop story ideas. Well, developing story ideas wasn't really too much of a problem. I was used to doing that. It was more pitching magazine articles and getting them accepted 
connected with still something that <laughs> baffles me, to be honest with you, sometimes. <laughs> so you mentioned that you, you write for Forbes, uh, and you've you obviously been a longtime writer for Forbes.com. How did that come around? That's a fun story. Um, I had a few ideas that I wanted to pitch, three, in fact, and it took me days to locate the right editor, which is also sort of the bane of my existence. You can probably relate to that. Yes, yes. Um, so I finally found the person I thought would be the right editor. I sent over the pitches, cold, cold pitch. Um, I think it was like that day before the next day, before 24 hours had gone by, I actually got a phone call from the editor telling me, I really like your pitches. We actually hire one of freelancers at this point. You know, it's too much paperwork, blah, blah, blah. But I'm looking for a beer contributor. Would you be interested? And uh, I think I put my hand over the phone, the mouthpiece of the phone and started jumping up and down. <laughs> That's how that happened. <laughs> And what do you what do you generally cover for for Forbes? Is is it just purely beer, or are you also you know I think you also branch out into into the broader alcohol sphere and some other and some other topics as well. That's correct. Technically, my title is beer and spirits contributor. Um, I do also have leeway to cover the scene in Philadelphia, which I do sometimes. Um, I hit wine and other beverages once in a while, but not usually. Um, and it's it's a great gig for a lot of reasons, including the fact that I can really define what it is that I write. And I can pick all of my own stories without getting advanced permission. And, and it's anything that pertains to the business of beer and or spirits. And I really like Having policy related to alcohol. And so I consider that to be business as well. So it can be something as simple as an innovative new product, perhaps. I don't usually cover new beverages mm -hmm. or, or releases um, or do reviews, but if something's really unique, I do cover it. Um, if something has sort of consequences for the industry, business, I cover that. And then as I mentioned, policy also. And I know probably into talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I do consider that to be business as well. And Forbes.com uh, is kind of an interesting look, kind of an interesting uh, market. And obviously, I, you know, I'm a longtime freelance writer as well. I uh, have the same issues pitching and, and finding you know, who to pitch to and all, all of that that you go through and coming up with ideas. But the Forbes.com is kind of kind of an interesting system and, and, and in my experience seems to be very different than uh, how a lot of other publications work. Can you walk me through a little bit what it, what does it mean to be a Forbes contributor and how do you know how do they approach you know you know start you know an article from beginning to sort of publication? Sure. Um, well there is this network of contributors and there are thousands of us around the world. Um, we each have a beat Many of us are professional freelance writers, but some of us do cover the industry that we work in. Say you would cover law, for mm. instance. Um, and uh, we are obligated to write a certain number of stories per month. Um, nothing really happens if we don't. We just don't get paid that month. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's built on a system that combines uh, a monthly payment that we get and then we also generate money based on 
clicks, views, et cetera. Um, and a couple other things that they keep adding and taking away that are less important, but that's the general structure. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, <laughs> we're often reminded to stay in our lane. So <laughs> you asked me what I cover for Forbes. Um, if I want to go outside of the business of beer and spirits or Philadelphia dining, I usually get permission. Um, well, it's usually not a problem to get permission, but I will run it by my editors yeah. first. And for, uh, was yeah. that what you were asking? Yeah, I think it is because it, it okay. cause, you know obviously the Forbes brand name is a is a really strong one, and and certainly in the industry when people see someone writes for Forbes, it it comes across as is very meaningful, and it just, it's just sort of an interesting space because you look on the website and. Uh, it's one of the only places I think I've ever seen that actually tells you the number of views that a that a per- particular <laughs> article gets. So it's interesting. Yes. I can see, you know, usually those are kind of metrics that are kept in house. So I can see that you know your recent article on you know on you know on Pittsburgh and uh, uh, diversity and inclusion and and with barrel and flow did reasonably well, but then, you know, a Pepsi article about black owned restaurants did, <laughs> right. ma- you know, maybe a quarter of it. Um, so it's, it's interesting to be able to see that. So how do you, how do you take the, you know, what sort of advice do they give you to look at these metrics? And is there, you know, I'd read elsewhere that payment is sometimes based on, you know, how well an article does. And I know there are plenty of other publications that do the same. Yeah, it's, it's an aspect that I don't really love, yeah. to be honest with you. Um, and, uh, but, you know, writing for Forbes definitely comes with its many, many advantages. So I have so far been willing to overlook the parts that I don't find quite as advantageous to writers as I would like. Um, so let's see, you asked, how does it work with the uh, clicks? Well, I um, could be better about sharing my stories. I mean, that's definitely one way that we're encouraged to um, generate a greater number. Um, that Pepsi story, for instance, I haven't actually um, promoted mm-hmm. yet on my social media channels, so I'm hoping to get slightly higher numbers once I do that. Um, so definitely sharing. They they do want us to build loyal readerships. Um, unfortunately, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, they did go under a pay, go behind the paywall. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. whatever loyal readerships we might have had, if they're not necessarily um, flush with money, we lost them. <laughs> um, and uh, and actually, to be honest, maybe this is a little bit um, of a tangent, but many of us, or I believe all of the contributors who work under the mo- same model that I do are paid the same amount regardless of what we cover. Mm-hmm. So for instance, there are celebrity writers or they cover celebrity, they're obviously going to get many more clicks right. than I will, you know, when I write about some random brewery somewhere. So, uh, you know, it's a little uneven. Yeah. <laughs> was that what you asked? Yeah, no, it, it okay. was. And, and so for, okay. are these, you know, are these pieces sort of edited? Are they assigned or do you just generate them and kind of, and you just do, I mean, you know, things are so pared down now in, in the, in the world of journalism that it seems like a lot of things have kind of, you know, that might've been traditional, you know, 10, 20 years ago or older are just not the case anymore. So I'm just, just curious as how to, and maybe this is just for me, but like, how are these, you know, are the pieces edited? How do they get assigned? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
Unfortunately, they are not edited, mm. to be honest with you. Um, Forbes has this relationship with its contributors where it says um, to us, basically, you're on your own. Mm. <laughs> um, if I get sued for libel, they are not necessarily going to back me up. Oof. They're not going to hire somebody from your profession to defend me. Yeah. Um, sometimes, and I, I think I'm allowed to speak freely. I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this. Um, sometimes they won't even, they're not, the, the editors, the staff editors are not even really supposed to help us with certain types of questions because they don't want to take on any liability. Yeah. And that I find to be really scary and really, um, yeah. I don't know. I don't want to say irresponsible, but you know. Um, So, oh, and we're we're often asked to, like, if we're referring to ourselves, perhaps in the first person, which we're sort of discouraged from doing, but we have to say I. We can't say Forbes Mm -hmm. has found out that we can't identify ourselves as Forbes in the stories. And you know, I mean, there are a lot of. serious very knowledgeable very capable contributors mm-hmm. in this network um and there are some who aren't <laughs> yeah it's a it's a really I, I it's an that, interesting business model it's and it's just one that i don't know has a has a peer really out there that i that i've seen uh, short of some i mean something almost like facebook or something where people are doing their own thing but this is a uh, you know obviously under the forbes brand it it takes on a cachet of its own it certainly does. And I mean, the best that I can hope for to um, you know, keep the contributing work as um, prestigious and qualified as I think it should be. And I hope that the contributors get vetted very well before they get brought on. Um, and I think most are. Um, I have had some, some issues with some of the contributors, especially in the beer space in the past, not recently, um, who might have been writing things that I didn't think were quite as accurate mm-hmm. or um, demonstrated as much sort of understanding of the industry as I would have liked. Um, but I think for, from what I see, for the most part, we do okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you had mentioned that uh, you, know, you, you do some work in marketing as well. And as you well know, there are very few writers who make a full-time living writing about beer. You know, Many, such as myself, you know, have other jobs or have par- people have partners or spouses who carry much of that financial load. You know, others such as yourself take on some of that outside work in areas like marketing consulting. You know, you talked a little bit about working for, I think, the, the local tourism board. But how did you get into market in the marketing side of things? Um, I, I have not tried to do so. I've um, gotten approached by different um entities who have asked me to do marketing and um i say yes and having been a reporter for so long i I feel like i have a very good understanding of what um, reporters need and want and so i generally do say yes to those requests um i've done it a little bit here and there for many years so i guess you could say that um i've gradually sort of learned how to get you know, bigger and better and more professional. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, you you mentioned that some of the some of the kind of mores in journalism are changing, and, and you and I have talked about this a little bit. Um, you know, I'm I'm not going to say that there aren't times when it's, it's not awkward to be doing journalism 
and marketing in the same space. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's certainly a lot of people, especially back in the day, who would say, who would raise their eyebrows and say the conflict of interest. Um, And I love talking about journalism ethics with people. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of ways to respond to that. I know that for myself, I um, keep things as separate as possible. For instance, if I'm using and the hot deal on top, there's certain stories I will choose not to write mm-hmm. um, because I don't think that's fair, um, etc. So, so yeah, it is seemingly I will say impossible <laughs> to make a full time living exclusively as a free, freelance beard journalist, um, and I have been very grateful. For the opportunities that I've been getting to represent clients, um, you know, in the marketing space. And, yeah. and then, like I said, I also um, have other gigs that I do a lot of teaching, et cetera. So I've been locked lately. I've been able to supplement my income that way. And we had mentioned at the top uh, that you are, you know, the author of the forthcoming book, uh, A Woman's Place is a Woman's Place is in the Brew House, A Forgotten History of Alewives, Brewsters, Witches, and CEOs. How did you develop the idea to write the book? It was Terry Ferrandorf's idea, to be honest with you. Um, Terry Ferrandorf, if there's anybody listening who isn't familiar with her name, she founded the Pink Boots Society in 2007, and that is the original organization for women um, working in craft beer, and it's now been expanded not just to beer, but spirits, wine, etc. Um, and she's this big thinker, <laughs> and um, she always used to give me these ideas. Tara, you have to do this. You have to start leading beer tours through Europe and she'd like get me excited and so intimidated at the same time. Like, Terry, I don't know how to run beer tours around Europe. You're crazy. Um, but uh, when she said, Tara, you have to write a book about the history of women in beer. No one's done it. And you're the one to do it. Finally, that clicked. I was like, oh, I could do that. <laughs> She's right. I think I am the one to do it because... You know, now there there are several female beer writers making a great name for themselves, making huge impacts um, in the women in beer writing space. But at the time, it was not going to say just me, because obviously there have been people before and after. But right at that time, I was kind of it. Nobody else was really focusing on it. And so along those lines, you have, you credit Terry, who, you know, in addition to being a world-class brewer and beer judge, is also, I believe, the founder of the Pink Boots Society. Um, what, and, and she writes the intro to the book as well. Correct. Mm-hmm. And, and I talk about her a lot. <laughs> yes, you, you, de- you definitely do. Uh, and so how did you decide, you know, obviously the, the topic um, you know, how do you approach the task of writing and researching this book where, you know, so much of craft beer history is, you know, simply retread and it's the same stories told over and over again, oftentimes without any, you know, original reporting. And so then sort of, you know, lies become myth, become mm-hmm. truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how here, how in this situation where it's a topic that has been so un- undercovered by, you know, in beer writing and in beer history, how do you decide where to focus on and how do you do your research uh, to figure out, you know, who you want to, who you want to be writing about? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I could spend a very long time answering that. Um, You know, 
I can let, let's start by talking about sourcing for just a moment and, and how to distinguish, you know, fact from fiction. Um, that's very difficult. You know, you and I, as reporters, we have learned, you know, how to suss out sources, figure out who's, you know, who's accurate and who isn't. Um, it's really hard when you're talking about ancient history, when so much of it isn't really known for certain anyway. Um, so I did as much original research as possible going to original sources or, you know, barring that, um, going to sort of the, and I'll air quote that, the text on the subject. Um, for instance, Dr. Patrick McGovern has um, written a lot about ancient alcohol, and, and I trust him. I mm -hmm. mean, he's an archaeologist. He has been on those digs. You know, he works for the University of Pennsylvania. He's the guy. Um, but even he doesn't know for sure. Um, so as much as possible, you know, when I was presenting something that nobody knows as fact, um, I would say so. Um, or at least, you know, use the journalistic words that <laughs> mm -hmm. are great tools to sort of hedge our hedge my bets. Um, and I think I also said something in the preface um, about, you know, this is the best research right. available. <laughs> but you know, some things, some things are uncertain. Um, so there's that. Um, the pandemic definitely changed the course of the book a lot. Um, before the pandemic, I was doing research wherever I would go to travel. So there's a lot on Finland, for instance, because I was in Finland and I took time to go to the National um, Library of Finland, etc. Um, but once I got locked down, I mean, so much of the research had to come, unfortunately, more from the internet. And mm -hmm. so, again, here we are, like, obsessing over whether what I'm reading seems to be accurate or not. Um, and uh, a lot of books. Um, and that made me a little nervous, to be honest, because, yeah. you know, we're all human. We're all fallible. Um, like I said, I'm going to the best sources I can. But I know that, you know, in beer and other topics, some of the people who are held up as the best sources, I see inaccuracies in what they sure. write. So, uh, you know, I'm holding my breath a little bit. Um, <laughs> obviously, the goal is to have zero mistakes. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that's it, I think that's a I think that's a common feeling for any author, regardless of what type of book you, or even frankly, journalists. You, know, <laughs> you just always want to you know make sure that you're getting it right. But you know sometimes you know you just can only do the best job you can. Yeah, right. Thank you for saying that. I, like in my head, I'm like, okay, second edition, we'll fix it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but hopefully that that won't that that won't arrive. So if there's one thing that echoes throughout the book, it's the systematic exclusion or even erasure of women from history and the story of craft beer and in specific breweries. And that's, you know, they can be from the histories of the founding of many of these, you know, the country's oldest craft breweries or some of the consequential ones. Um, you know, one of those stories that really struck me was how you open the book. And that's the description of what is credited largely as America's, you know, first craft brewery, the story that's often told about Jack McAuliffe and New Albion Brewery, except you mm -hmm. had, and, and there's often in beer history, 
some mention of his partner, Susie Stern. But you know, right. this, this version in this book is very different from the one we've come to tell. Can you talk to us about Susie Stern? Oh, I love talking about Susie Stern. She is great. Um, she is happily still alive, living in Seattle. She's in her 80s. Um, and yeah, I mean, she serves as such a such a perfect example of the the point I'm trying to get across in this book, as you mentioned, which is that women get erased. I mean, craft beer history geeks know about New Albion. They know the name Jack McCall. They don't know the name Susie Stern. And there was another woman, too, who was there briefly right at the beginning, who was also an investor. Her name was Jane Zimmerman. Mm -hmm. No one knows her name. Um, she kind of doesn't really want to be found, I don't think. Um, but uh yeah, even people I would really expect to know about Susie don't. So um, basically, Susie put up half the money with Jane to open New Albion. It was Jack's dream. They all met out in Sonoma County in the late 70s, mid to late 70s. Well, I guess it would be mid, mid 70s. Um, Jack had been in the Navy. He had been a home brewer. He wanted to make his own good beer on a commercial scale that was like unheard of at the time. Um, and the three of them got together. The two women bought into Jack's dream and they uh, turned this rickety warehouse <laughs> with eight airplane parts into the first um, post-prohibition post ground up brewery in America. Um, yeah. And then, so it only, Jane took off after about a year. Um, Susie stuck with it the whole time. Um, they only were open about six years, unfortunately. Um, Jane, I mean, sorry, Susie and Jack did not part amicably mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. Um, according to Susie, they never spoke again, and uh, she kind of wandered off into the ether, left the beer world completely. Jack did the same, um, but he had the good fortune of reuniting with a daughter he never knew he had, who got him back into the beer world, and um, I won't go too much into that. That's a different story. It's pretty cool. Uh, listeners, look it up if you don't know about um, what Jim Cook had to Jim Cook and Ken Grossman. They're all part of this story. Maureen Ogle is part of the story, the historian. Um, but yeah, Susie was forgotten about until um, the Audacity of Hops book was written. And mm -hmm. that's actually how I found out about Susie. Um, and then Teresa McCullough, who is the craft beer curator at the Smithsonian, has found her and talked to her. And then um, last year, or maybe earlier this year, um, Jeff Allworth wrote a mm -hmm. long Q&A with her. And that was really the first, um, like, I guess you could call mainstream beer interview published that she's ever done. Uh, since the 70s actually she probably yeah. never did any of the 70s either because jack took jack would do the interviews right. he was the face you know um and so i'm really happy to um be able to showcase her so much in this book she's she's really a spitfire i uh <laughs> I, I think she's a lot of fun she's very funny and very direct 
<laughs> I think there were, yeah, and there were a lot of great stories kind of along that similar vein throughout the book. Is there one, is there just another one that you can sort of talk about that were, you know, that you thought was a you know, particularly meaningful or particularly good encapsulation of, of just what you were trying to capture here? Yeah. Um, you, uh, I want to highlight two women very quickly. I'll just start with the first one. Uh, I'll just start with um, Beth. Hartwell first, um, you know, Pyramid Breweries. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it started out as heart brewing. It was, uh, I want to say maybe the second brewery in craft brewery in Washington, one of the very earliest ones. Um, and uh, for a while in my research, I thought that she might, so she opened heart brewing with her husband, her then husband. Um, but like those breweries at the time. I mean, a lot of them were founded by husbands and wives. Mm-hmm. The husbands would brew, the women would do like everything else. Yes. <laughs> Not to say that the men weren't because these were like super from scratch ground up breweries, but you know, just a 24 seven operations as you can imagine, like getting them off the ground, trying to explain to people what the heck they were talking about. Why do you want a small batch beer when we've got like three breweries already producing beer. Isn't that enough for you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the, the Millers and Buds of the world. Um, and anyway, so um, they sold the brewery a very long time ago to Pyramid. Um, and then they disappeared from the brewing world. And I had a really hard time finding her. Um, it took me a good few months and I finally did. And um, I then sort of, I met with her in person out um, at Full Sail, actually brewing in uh, in Oregon. And I met her, I introduced her to some people. I introduced her to Terry and um, it was kind of her first, uh, I don't know, the first light she'd ever had shown on her as being involved in the brewing world. Right. And um, I, I felt really good about sort of bringing her back into it a bit. So that's pretty self-congratulatory on my part. Sorry about that. But we have a nice friendship now and uh, she's really wonderful. Um, but I think the story that comes to mind that really exemplifies what we're talking about as far as women getting written out of the transcript um, is Nellie Pullman. Mm-hmm. Um, Melly Pullman is actually the first um, co-owner and head brewer at a craft brewery, as we define them in the, you know, in the contemporary sense, um, in America. And she helped open um, what we now call Wasatch. Mm-hmm. Do I even say that? I don't even know that I've ever said that out loud. <laughs> Wasatch, I, right? I think that sounds <laughs> that sounds right. But as someone who is not, you know, from Utah or spend a lot of time there, I I've always wondered myself. But we'll I, we'll okay. go with that. Sounds about right. We'll go with that. I I think I've maybe been to Utah once. Um, need to get back there. Anyway, so um, she and Greg Scherf opened Wasatch. It was the first craft brewery in Utah. I mean, imagine how hard that would have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, she left pretty quickly. She, I think, was only there about a year, which, okay, might have something to do with the fact that, like, when you go onto the brewery's website, at least the last time I looked, 
a year or two ago, there was this long history about how this brewery came to be. And then Wasatch also bought squatters. And so it's this whole sort of dynamic duo of breweries. And it talks all about Greg. And with all due respect, I don't know who wrote it. I'm not saying Greg did, but there's no mention of Melly anywhere at all. Um, And so that's, an example of a woman literally getting written out of the history. I mean, she, and and even now, you know, when you have like a man and a woman owning a brewery, whatever their relationship is, it's almost always the man doing the brewing and the woman maybe doing the business side or whatever, but that was reversed. Melly was the brewer. She hired women to brew for her, like people who worked at ski patrol and, um, in lumber, you know, these tough women, <laughs> just, I picture it sometimes and I laugh it. It must've been fun. Yeah. It's a, it's a fan. And for those who are listening, it's a great book. I definitely recommend uh, folks get out and read it. There are a lot of stories like that, that I think capture um, some really undertold, you know, parts of, of, of craft beer's history. And I think that one of the exciting things that we're witnessing right now with, with you know changes in how craft beer writing and, and and a greater diversity is we're starting to see these stories that have been undercovered for so long, uh, you know, brought to the surface. And I think you know stories like Susie Stern and and the story, stories about Melly are 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 fascinatingly told. And so it, it's definitely a good read. Oh, thank you so much. You know, I don't know if we're out of time or not, so feel free to cut this. But um, there's a concept that I've learned about through writing, researching and writing this book. And um, I rely a lot on um, Tia Edmondson Morton, who is um, a beer archivist at Oregon State University. And anyone who's into craft beer history really needs to check out her series of blog posts and websites and everything. Um, But she taught me about this concept of archival silences, Mm -hmm. um, which is something that, you know, with like underrepresented stories being talked about more, you know, with black and brown people's contributions to brewing, women's contributions, et cetera. Like this concept of archival silences is so powerful because, you know, it's, it's the men who wrote the stories all along and the things that women have done traditionally in brewing were just considered like boring, not really worth writing about. It's just women's household work, you know, and, and maybe the same could be said for enslaved people in colonial America. Their stories in brewing weren't really written down. And so we're at this point in history right now, exactly like you're saying, where there are more people trying to do the work to bring light, shed light on those stories mm-hmm. that, that existed, but were not part of the history, the written history anyway. Right. And, you know, obviously in the, you know, we've talked a lot about history, but some of that history is, is, you know, it feels like the timing of this book could not be better because, you know, as in the last year, um, you know, the history has sort of come, come right to the surface. And so now in the past year, the beer industry has experienced a growing reckoning in several areas, uh, including, you know, racism and sexism, um, and certainly through the Brianne Allen and Rat Magnet uh, Instagram account and the stories of sexism and misogyny throughout the industry. What has been your response to to what you have seen in the last year? Oh, 
we're we're away from the book now, right? Right. Yes. Okay. Because <laughs> I was gonna say like the book was done, and I just I wrote in like a couple paragraphs, like as it was getting sent out to the printer. Yeah, I that mean, that's how the, I handled things, that. <laughs> things are things are always gonna you know change, and, and but this this feels like you know that you know just a as as an author in in this situation, it's it just you're like oh my gosh, this is just this is such a huge story that is kind of come up right at the time I'm writing this book. I'm sure the book would have been slightly different had, uh, like you said, second edition sort of thing. But let's get a preview of that second edition. So what is your what is your response to what you've seen in the last year? Yeah, you know, I think my overwhelming response is it is about damn time. Um, you know, having immersed myself in these stories of so many women, I mean, even if we're just looking at like craft beer in America, but even going back hundreds and thousands of years, I mean, misogyny, unconscious misogyny for the most part has been pervasive throughout beer. And it really, really, and you know what, I'm going to pull back. Let's just talk about it like craft for the past 50 years or so. Mm -hmm. Um, It didn't start out like that, at least from within the ranks of people who were brewing, like, I don't think Beth Hart's husband, Beth Hartwell's husband was like being disdainful toward other people's lives in the brewing industry. But when Beth Hartwell would go to pay, you know, pay visits to distributors, it was right up there front and center. They would ask her like, where's Tom? Why isn't Tom here? That was her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, Irene Fermat has the same thing. They'd be like, oh, well, we don't sell beer to women. And she'd be like, well, then you don't sell my beer. Peace out. Um, and that was the eighties. So, um, this kind of, uh, exclusion, marginalization at, you know, at, at best, you know, I mean, it, it descends into terrible sexual assault and such. Mm-hmm. It's been, it has been in the industry since the beginning. And it was a really well-kept secret, I think for a long time. Like I, was astounded maybe six or seven years into covering women in beer pretty closely that people finally started to tell me the truth about what was happening because what I would always get is oh well it's never anybody I work with it's just the idiots at the festivals who ask to talk to the brewer and I'm the brewer or whatever But then people really finally started quietly talking about, well, you know, I used to work for the celebrity brewer. Everyone knows his name and um, he would never promote me. And I know it's because I was a female and this and that. Um, And so it's very slowly started coming out in a trickle, like starting maybe two years ago. And then thank goodness for Brienne, who is strong enough to have, taken on this entire issue on her own shoulders and now some other people are joining um where she is giving people the strength and the cover and the solidarity to come out and tell their own stories and now i don't think we'll ever be able to pretend it's not happening anymore and i'm I'm also very grateful and i'm sorry i feel like maybe i'm rambling a little bit but um I'm really, really grateful that it's happening because I do see some nice um, learning and changing happening. And I hear a lot of people express fear that 
it's just going to kind of go away with the next news cycle. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think that there's too much already starting to take place that will improve um, the brewing industry for women and all sorts of marginalized populations. Um, and I don't think we or our allies are going to let, you know, let darkness come, creep back in. Mm-hmm. And one of the, and I was interested in your book, you do cover some of this, like you said, a little bit, obviously it was pretty late breaking, but also there's a bit of a flip side here that you have been kind of known for in terms of if, if your writing is also having some concern that perhaps, uh, you know, the policing of, of commentary and actions are also going a little bit too far. And this was, you know, you, you had written about this for, for Forbes and done some commentary on, on Twitter and social media. But also I was interested to see that it also does make it into the book. Um, and you note that you sort of wrestle with, you know, the polemic uh, over women bearing their breasts for Instagram clicks and, and trying to place that into, you know, sort of its proper role. But so do you think that, you know, some of this has gone too far? Do you have still have these concerns? And, 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 and what are your thoughts on that? That's a really good question. Yes, I have made some enemies for being sort of more conservative um, than sort of the overall zeitgeist. Um, Like you're saying, when it comes to, you know, your female beer bloggers, for instance, always posing when like very sexually with beer bottles and such. Right. Um, I don't think it's gone too far when we're talking about workplace safety and comfort. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I did have an acquaintance, a female acquaintance call me a couple months ago and say, you know, I'm having a problem with how many of these accusations are anonymous because I'm getting a lot of, um, flack right now because people are mistake. People think that I'm one of the people making the complaints Mm -hmm. and I'm not, uh, but there's like this really random perceived evidence that puts me at the scene of like the crime, so to speak. And like, I'm getting all this pushback for it and I have nothing to do with it. Um, So I'm not going to say that there's nothing that's gone too far in the opposite direction. Um, But I, I think that nothing's really risen to a level that concerns me yet. Like, I'm sorry for my friend who's dealing with this issue, but it's, it's small with all due respect to her. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I don't think it's gone too far. Um, I believe women. I see why it needs to, you know, these these allegations need to be anonymous. Um, and I'm very, very, very concerned um, from the reaction on the other side, which is the people, mostly men, um, who deny that it's this bad, deny that it happens, question why the accusation, you know, Mm-hmm. Why people didn't come out and make these accusations, you know, before or publicly. Um, there's still a lot of denial and a lot of um, <sighs> obfuscation. And uh, that makes me pretty sick. <laughs> and is there, uh, I think one of the, the main 
areas that you cover in the book for this particular topic has to do with you know, something that happened about two years ago with Chris Fernari and Justin Kendall of Brewbound and a commentary that they had made on their podcast with regards to uh, you know, women who, uh, in, whether they're influencers or, or beer writers and their Instagram or online uh, accounts. Um, what were your thoughts just on, you know, what, and eventually this led to, you know, uh, Chris Fernari's, uh, termination from Brewbound, uh, there, and you talk about it in the book that, you know, you sort of try to draw a distinction between, you know, the commentary that they made and whether or not that went into something that should have, um, should have led to his being, being, uh, fired from that job. And I think you had termed it, you know, his loss feels like a waste. Mm. Did I say that? Okay, sure. That sounds like something I would have said. Um, yeah, you know, as I say in the book, and as I'm pretty public about, and I, I have a habit, good or bad or indifferent, I see things very often in generational terms. Um, I'm a Gen Xer. Um, and I think in what you referenced before about things going too far, I mean, I'm, I'm, as a journalist, I probably shouldn't say this so publicly, but I think it's pretty obvious. I mean, I'm pretty liberal. Um, and yet I do get concerned about how far some of the policing goes. And I tend to sort of blame millennials just cause like it's easy. Right. Um, <laughs> But I think that the expectations, and this is great. I mean, this is how progress happens. The expectations that millennials and younger have of the things that are okay to say um, and do are different. And I guess I'm sort of confusing the issues here because you're asking about bearing breasts and I'm talking about politically correct policing and, and they're different. But um, I don't know. As I say in the book, when it comes to how I view the these Instagrammers are viewed. I mean, I understand now I've gotten a lot of education from the pushback I got on that. It's much more nuanced than I originally mm -hmm. presented it. Um, but, you know, I remember taking women's studies classes, you know, as young as like junior high, when I went to nerd camp, <laughs> uh, school camp. And, you know, we would, we would look at magazines and dissect the images of women used in advertising and the words used to describe them. And I found it so interesting because Justin Kendall in the podcast that got them in trouble said, some of them even are, aren't even showing their heads. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things we got sort of vilified for. But when we, when I was a child, when I was in school, you know, we would, go through these these women's magazines and say look they're not even showing her head like <laughs> she's been disembodied and this is what's being used to sell this perfume or whatever it is and so <sighs> yeah, I'm really all over the place here with this answer. I'm sorry, Andy. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's not going to be a fun part for you to edit. <laughs> well, I definitely want to thank you for taking the time to come on. And as I said, your your book is coming out uh, next month at this point in September. It's a woman's place is in the brew house, and this is indeed a you know a forgotten history of women and their role in not just the brew house, but in in helping build 
you know, some of the biggest and most important and consequential names in craft beer. And I would certainly recommend that that folks get out there and, and read this one. And so, Tara, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much. Okay, that was great. It was very, very entertaining. I think it's going to be a, a good listen. And like I said, I think the book, the book is, you know, I have not had a chance to go through it totally fully, but I've, you know, focused on certain, you know, a lot of the, you know, the older, the Egyptian and the Sumerian sort of history that um, gets a little, little dense for my taste in the beginning here, but the modern, oh, okay. the, you know, the, no, just for, and eventually I will go back and read through the whole thing, but I've mm-hmm. in preparation for here. Yeah. Just the, the history over the last 30 years or so. Uh, is just really interesting. And I think it does a great job at bringing out a lot of these voices that are that have just sort of been lost to history um, or have not been fully flushed out. Uh, and I imagine it had to be fascinating. To, you know, it's one thing to talk to, to you know, Sam Calagione or, or even Mariah or people like that, but then to go back into these people who were there when they were building something that hadn't been built before. And, and then, you know, to see Jack and other folks you know, sort of get the late stage lauding that they have, but also um, folks like Susie to kind of be left behind. I think it's, I think it's a good testament to them. Thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, that is one aspect that I feel like is maybe my biggest contribution. Thanks for listening to the Beer Edge podcast. My partner, John Hall, and I work hard to bring you fresh and insightful content related to the ever-changing world of craft beer. We're passionate about beer and independent journalism. If you're interested in supporting Beer Edge, visit our website, beeredge.com, which is updated regularly with new content, interviews, and articles. Please also consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your episodes. You can also subscribe to the Beer Edge newsletter on our website. Is there anyone you think that we should be talking to? please drop us a line at andy at beeredge.com with your thoughts. Thanks for your support.